I really do today look like I'm from Alabama, don't I? I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. No, I mean it. Not a single penny. Republican wins. Inflation is going to get worse. It's that simple. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Charles C.W. Cook sitting in for Peter Robinson. I'm James Lyles, and today we talk to Deb Saunders about her new podcast and her experience covering Trump. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. This is the Ricochet Podcast, and it's episode number 614. Join us at ricochet.com. Why don't you? And you'll find out how we've got this far. Uh, Partly, mostly, by providing a place for civil, sane conversation that you don't find elsewhere on the web. That's it. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm James Lilacs, Minneapolis, where it just snowed and nobody's happy about it at all. Rob Long, I believe, is in New York. Peter Robinson, we think, is doing the grand tour. And this very moment is that the Uffizi somewhere, probably a sweater gently knotted around his neck as he regards the great treasures of Western art. And he is uh, replaced, although Peter can't be replaced, uh, by Charles C.W. Cook. Charles, thank you for joining us today as the, as the airsats Peter. No one's could be the Assets Peter. That's true. <laughs> How very true. Uh, well, gentlemen, here we are. Um, I'm casting my mind over the big issues of the last week, bombshells, detonations, and the rest of it. Didn't seem to be any unless I missed something. Um, but... We did have that little note about how the uh, Biden administration pressured the Saudis to please, please give us some oil because we got midterms coming up. Do you believe the story? And uh, does it strike you as plausible? And if so, uh, will this have any impact whatsoever? I laugh when I say it, but I'm going to ask anyway. Which to whom are you directing that question? <laughs> I hope I, not one me. Of you can, uh, well, look, I mean, I think I think the, um, this is only you know all presidents do this with oil um the oil supply for a whole variety of reasons whether they connect it to the midterms or not the, the saudis aren't dumb they they're familiar with the american political calendar um it's only sort of interesting in that this seems very very similar to a, a perfect call a really perfect call that the former president made with the current president and battle president of ukraine and so it seems like it's interesting it I mean, it's, you know, it is it kind of one, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it is one more indication that, well, that I think, we, need I think a, we need a new, new word for double standard, double standard now no longer has the kind exact, of fight it, it should. It, they would be exactly the same if indeed anything having to do with Ukraine at the moment affected people's lives the way the price of energy does now. Uh, the price yeah, of energy yeah, is affecting everything, point. pumping up everything, uh, inflating everything, and it's disastrous and everybody knows it. So, Charles, um, CNN has got the headline, voters may care more about the cost of French fries than January 6th's compelling evidence. I'm stunned that people are actually looking around and saying uh, milk is now three fifty a gallon. And it used to be a buck eighty nine. That they care more about that than the insurrection, <laughs> the coup, the threat to our democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I wrote about this yesterday. Before getting to the meat of it, I think it's worth pointing out how crazy it is that an editor somewhere signed off on a piece, the main thrust of which is, People care too much that food is too expensive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in particular, potatoes, the the single most historically fraught menu item in world history. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite true. (laughs) Gosh, look at these people complaining about the price of potatoes. But, but, you know, I think the the key point here is... (laughs) Well, there are many. The, the first is this is a good indication of the way the press lives in a bubble. And that's a cliche, but it's true. And I, I am on the record. I'm happy to repeat it again as believing that Donald Trump should have been impeached for what happened on the 6th. Well, no, not what happened on January 6th. What happened after the election? Because January 6th is a distraction in one sense, in that we were not close to a coup. And we were not close to losing our democracy. But the fact that he tried to stage a coup is an impeachable offense, and he should have been impeached for it. Right. Um, 
so this is not me downplaying what Trump did or downplaying January 6th, but the, the, the truth is that Donald Trump's not on the ballot in the midterms. And the indifference toward relitigating 2020 increasingly cuts both ways in that, yes, voters don't seem as interested in the Democrats' self-serving conception of our democracy, which now seems to mean Democrats have to win every race, than the Democrats would like them to be. But they're also not as interested in the Trump-esque obsession with 2020 as those Republicans would like them to be, as is being made increasingly clear in Georgia, where Brian Kemp and Brad mm-hmm. Raffensperger, both of whom were on the end of pretty much all of the lunacy that we saw in 2020, seem to be coasting home. Um, and in fact, coasting home against another election denier in, in Stacey Abrams. So, you know, I think that the argument that this is a big problem that people should be worried about is in and of itself somewhat flawed. But even if it weren't, you're just not going to take people off inflation because it is catastrophic and it's causing an extraordinary number of problems and not just the problems that inflation causes but the problems that fighting inflation causes too mm-hmm. this is why right. it's so pernicious because you have inflation that in- increases prices and makes people poorer and destroys their wage growth and so on but also to get rid of it you have to raise interest rates to the point at which mortgages become very expensive cars become very expensive for most people and you have to induce a recession, which is horrendous for most people. So, right, like, of course, right, right. they're going to worry about this. Right. Exactly. I mean, the 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 only known cure, I mean, for inflation is a recession, and that that's sort of what they have to do. They have to create it. That's what Paul Volcker did. It was a white knuckle ride for the first uh, uh, Reagan term to see if Volcker would tame inflation. And the economy could pick back up in time for the reelect in '84. That was one of the things they were terrified of. Turned out that mm-hmm. it worked out, but it was a very much a Paris of Pauline moment where the train is uh, heading towards the tracks, and and the damsel Ronald Reagan is tied to the tracks, and he's going to have to pay the price. If it, and everybody knew it. And then ten years later, barely ten years later, when um, uh, Bill Clinton was running for president, people always get this wrong. But there was a sign he had in the campaign headquarters that said, famously, "It's the economy, economy. stupid." And what that was was a note to everybody who works at that campaign: Do not talk about anything else. Voters do not care about anything else. They care about the economy. You had a smashing re-election in 84 because Americans care about economy. You had an eke out plurality win in 92 because Americans care about the economy. It is, should not be news that Americans care about the economy, but you know, the, the the mandarins, the left-wing mandarins and all the press want you to think about this thing that almost happened, but didn't really happen and couldn't really have happened. This unruly riot that was deadly riot in the Capitol, but was at no point ever in danger of changing the actual results of the election. And so you're really, what they're really saying is we want you to be more concerned with a thing that didn't happen and could never have happened than with the actual price you pay with your actual dollars at the actual gas pump at the actual grocery store. Um, and that's just bananas. Uh, but one of the reasons why people have to deny the inflation, you have to deny it as long as you can and say it's temporary, this and that and the other, is because the only cure for it is the chemotherapy of a recession. And that is on nobody's um, you know, wish list. Casting or otherwise. <laughs> casting the previous attempt to tame inflation in the, in terms of old movie serials and the perils of Pauline has me now thinking that- of Paul Volcker with a long mustache and a black <laughs> right. hat saying, you must raise the rates. But People maybe perhaps aren't concerned as much as the Democrats want them to be about January 6th because they have memories of things that also transpired in 2020. Do you do you think that if the Lafayette riots, if you remember those, when the people were banging at the fences and burning the flags and the rest of it, do you think if they had gotten into the White House and been able to get into Donald Trump's office, they would have killed him? That's a really good question. I mean, that was a mean, mean crowd and they seemed bent on mm, i don't know the insurrection anyway we're not supposed to compare the two because one was a uh, had its origins in righteous anger and the other was just crazy proud boy talk but you're right um the idea that they wouldn't concentrate on the economy stupid it has to do possibly because i can't think of another reason they are so besotted by the agenda that they wish to get in place as fast as possible that the rest of these things seem uh, like minor 
heady impediments. I mean, if you're going to change the world, if you're going to transition us from that bad old polluting, earth-killing, fossil fuel-based economy to something that's new and wonderful and vibrant and shiny and wind-based, yes, it's it, people caring about the price of French fries is incredibly irritating because you've got this serious work to do. You have genders to realign. You've got isms and structural isms right. to upend. So why the stupidity of the American people not to realize that uh, that a, a, a stem to stern keel to to uh, what's the other part of the keel, the pointy part of the ship? In other words, the, the entire American enterprise has to be redone and rejiggered, and the rest of it, and things like inflation. I mean, it's just how, how how small how small are you people? It's also a strange choice because um, I, I think from the polling that I've looked at. The um, abortion issue, if they number <laughs> weren't eight. so nuts about it, number eight. But it would have. It, but it, it was. A, it was. A, it's a very good way <clears throat> for Democrats. I mean, Dem, I mean, you know, Democrats. Their 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 fortunes in the midterms improved uh, radically. Improved um, thanks to the Dobbs decision. And it, you know, I'm just talking about politically. It 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 seems like that's where you want to be. But their problem is that they're just as weird and as extreme as. The other side, you know, most Americans are <clears throat> roughly in the center here. Like, I don't know, first trimester, okay. You know, most most Americans are not classically pro-life. Therefore, abortion regulation, pro-reg, basically. Um, and so they had an they had an avenue to scoop up the vast middle by being normal, and instead they uh, elected, I think, in some strange way, to double down on January 6th, which is a, an issue of no interest to Americans, to ignore and to sort of a, a, um, a nitpick with definitions of recession and definitions of, of inflation for nine months. <clears throat> and and then sort of to forget where their fortunes lie, in where everybody's fortunes lie, which is with the economy. It's just a very strange... Very strange choice. Both of these parties seem to me to be like running on empty. They 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 seem desperately to <laughs> be need, need need to be replaced um, by a newer and, and and smarter model. That's my larger takeaway. I certainly think that the effects of Dobbs have diminished, as I thought they would, because they're being absorbed at the local level. And most people by this point who care about it are familiar with the laws of their state, which in most cases, if not all, line up with their own preferences. Florida, for example. Now, Florida may change. DeSantis might push for a stricter set of abortion regulations. Maybe the legislature will do it for him. But currently, Florida is at 15 weeks. And the average Floridian's preference is 15 weeks. 15 that's not weeks, my right. preference because I'm a classical pro-lifer, as you put it. But that's the average Floridian's preference and the average Floridian votes. And as such, abortion has not been much of an issue in this race. And the only... Well, no, that see... that's not true. I mean, the abortion is really the, one of the reasons why Democrats are 10 points down. No, I mean, sorry, they, they I in great... Florida... In Florida, right? I mean, they gain they gain ground in a lot of places, and they haven't lost it yet. But they certainly have not pressed their advantage because they don't really have one, right? right? That their advantage would be, hey, listen, we're the reasonable people, and instead they're like, well, we're insane, and we're just a little less insane than our opponents. Which is, you know, both of these parties are always going for the one quarter of a percent win. They all they have they're desperately attracted to the high wire act in american politics which is not a way to govern and not a way to get anything done well this the, high, the, the high wire act forms the basis of the cover art for one of super tramp's later albums uh famous last words <laughs> which i believe we can talk nice about later because charles is a super tramp fan as am i well, but i'm just i'm just wondering if an organization decides to go say no we're going to start to uh, lobby for restrictions of abortions after nine weeks and they open up a bank account to do so and they incorporate and the rest of it and then their bank tells them i'm sorry we're closing your account because more well, because reasons um unless of course you'd like to give us a list of all your donors this happened to a religious organization and they were cut off by chase it's an interesting story i'd like to learn more about it but it's worrisome and it's not one of those things where people say well you know private affiliation go get your own bank it's um it's a trend and it's worrisome you might wonder if there's any way around it, and there is. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust. It's a tax-friendly way to amp to simplify your charitable giving without compromising your values. Now, question is, 
Is cancel culture coming from your charitable dollars? Big banks that sponsor charitable savings accounts or donor-advised funds, as they're formally called, have a history of slow walking or altogether blocking donations to conservative charities. Charities that have found themselves in the crosshairs of this uh, woke mob include Alliance Defending Freedom, heard of them, National Review Institute, yay, National Rifle Association Foundation, Liberty Council, Turning Point USA, and others. Now, not every donor-advised fund provider is safe for conservatives. Let Donors Trust help manage your charitable giving. Donors Trust was built with our listeners in mind, and that would be people who believe limited government and constitutional rights are worth fighting for. So if you already have a donor-advised fund, consider opening a rollover account. It can be done in three simple steps by calling our friends at Donors Trust. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Partner with a fund that matches your values. To learn more, download their prospectus, or do it twice, prospect I, at www.donorstrust.org slash Ricochet. That's donorstrust.org slash ricochet. To align your giving with your values, visit www.donorstrust.org slash ricochet. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Deb Saunders, syndicated columnist, fellow with the Discovery Institute's Chapman Center for Citizen Leadership. For years, she wrote a column for the San Francisco Chronicle before taking a new job as White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal from 2017 to 2021. She's got a new podcast, Covering Trump. It's going to tell the story of, well, covering Trump. Deb, welcome back. How are you doing today? We are all fine and or dandy, Uh, but we got to start. You miss your old job? Sometimes I miss it every day. I just don't want to go back to it because it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was, it, it was one of those things. It was the best and the worst. So mm-hmm. yes and no. And oh, uh, yeah, by the way, very different covering Biden. Very, very different. I, yeah, I, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> hey, Deb, it's Rob Long. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I, I do want to remind everybody your new podcast covering Trump is fantastic. Uh, if you are not, uh, if you don't subscribe to it, you got to subscribe to it. It's fantastic. Um, all right. So I know covering Biden's different. So I want to ask like, all right, now you, when you're watching the news mm-hmm. or reading the news, mm-hmm. do you ever just jump out of your chair and think, give me a break? You know what I mean? Like, do you ever think to yourself, this is, I mean, as now as a consumer of this, of, of presidential coverage, do you ever think to yourself, yeah, call the cops, arrest these guys. These guys are doing a terrible job. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, the treatment of Donald Trump by the by White House press corps was very different than it was for Donald Trump. Now, let's understand, Trump sort of was a pretty provocative with the press in a way right. that Biden is in a much more mild way. So that was part of it. And of course, the bias thing. You know, I was there when, 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 they, when the dossier came out in that press conference in Trump Tower. I was there. And I took one look at that document and I said, this is a fraud. It's so clear that this is a fraud. And everybody in the press corps knew it was a fraud. That's why all the big papers wouldn't cover it. And then BuzzFeed leaks it and it plays. And all of a sudden they acted like it was real. And that's the kind of thing that you'd watch and you'd think, I think the press corps looks really bad with this story. The, The way that they played overplayed Russiagate when they knew how dubious it was, that was just a stain on the media. Yeah, so it's hard. I mean, you know, uh, Trump wrote, uh, I guess, or Trump, I don't know, officially, the official Trump communication to the uh, January 6th committee. I read that this morning. And uh, it doesn't look like there were many other hands involved in the writing of it. It seemed like it was dictated stream of consciousness right from his, you know, reptile brain. Um, I don't mean he has a, I mean, we all have reptile brains, the reptile part of the human brain, I should say. Um mm-hmm. And it's all crazy. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to, we're going to, everyone's going to turn this off. I I don't think he's fit to be president, but I read that. And if you, if you parse all the madness and the neurotic uh, paranoia and the uh, incredible uh, insecurity there, uh, he's right about pretty much all of the scandal stuff. He's right about the, certainly the first impeachment. He's right about Russia, Russia, Russia. He's right about all that stuff. And, um, so I'm in this awkward position of saying, well, he's right. Um, do you think anyone ever is going to say anything even remotely similar to that in the uh, uh, from um, from among your co- your former colleagues? Well, I mean, not everybody in the um, in the in the White House press corps was leaning left. Leaning. There were there were people who leaned to the right, and they there are more of them 
I think, then than there are now. Um, I mean, I think the other perfect example is the Hunter Biden story, the way that that was just not covered and it's still not getting covered and that you'll finally see the rare major newspaper story on it and it doesn't tell you that much mm-hmm. and they're, they're, you know they, they're just not covering it so uh that that's got to change that has to change because it just looks bad and it's a problem i mean the, you saw jake tapper interviewing um uh, uh, the president about and he asked about hunter biden but he didn't ask the, the question about why did he get all that money Whatever right. made people think that giving Hunter Biden this money was a good idea. And and those are the follow up questions that I thought were more important. So um, if you were going to if you were going to issue some if you were going to be the managing editor of, you know, whatever we're calling the new CNN or whatever, you know, some some news, some large mm-hmm. news organization, mm-hmm. how would you how would you fix this? What would well, you they- do? You, you have unlimited power. I'm giving you unlimited power for, for you know 24 <laughs> hours. What, what are you going to do? I would get rid of 60% of the people and I would go to, I would actually look at regional news organizations to get people who have been working as journalists outside the beltway and have a better sense of what interests Americans. Sometimes this stuff is so inside. So I would look for people who have covered politics in different places and, and, and get them out there. So, you know, some, uh, smaller news stations, local news stations, uh, newspapers, and get people who have a better sense of what the American people care about as opposed to people at a cocktail party at the press club. Right. I mean, do you think, I mean, look, look, everybody I know in the press, except for the people I know for a fact are not progressive Democrats, mm-hmm. are progressive Democrats. I mean, they, they are, they're not progressives in the sense that they don't, They'll not they won't toss the Democratic Party off the off the side of the ship. They seem much more partisan um, and, and, and partisanship seems like the most important thing, more important than, you know, fealty to some kind of ideological mission. Right. Um, is 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 the would it be wise just to label people like just so I know that they, so they know that I know <laughs> yeah. and I know that they know that I know that they're, you know, left wing progressives and I can kind of digest their reporting that way or is that are we i mean that's, that's yeah, way, what's okay. the way it used to be i mean that's the way all these newspapers used to be 100 years ago uh, well actually so having worked in for for three newspapers over 30 plus years most journalists think that they're actually neutral they're liberal democrats <laughs> who think right. that they're neutral and they don't really believe that they're biased i mean they right. know it so if you really push them they'll say yes we are but it's for the good you know we're, that's because we're smarter than other people exactly. i mean i've heard that exactly right exactly because they, exactly. they they all listen to the washington to npr and read the post and the new york times because that's what's correct that's mm-hmm. th- that's what's right and then on mm-hmm. the other side of it are all these crazy people with contrary ideas <laughs> Speaking of somebody who, too, has worked in three newsrooms, actually four. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'll give you a great example of how things are different. Um, when Joe Biden saw a doctor, they managed it really well when he mm-hmm. saw the White House physician and they sort of mentioned it. They didn't bring the doctor in. There weren't all these. No, nobody asked a question about whether there were cognitive tests. Nobody asked sort of, and, and I remember being there when Ronnie Jackson came out after he'd given a physical to Trump. Uh, and okay, some of the things he said were a little believable about how healthy Trump was, given given uh, certain, you know, given, given his, his weight at the time. But, um, he, you know, they took questions. He was out there and, and, the, and the press asked a ton of questions, uh, very invasive questions at times. So you just see a real... Uh, 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 and also, of course, this White House is in, is in a position to punish people who ask too many questions and, and ask the wrong questions and not call on those people. So it's a it's a very different um, atmosphere now. Hey, I'm going to jump in here, Deb. Sorry, I got to interrupt because things just, you know, commercials, we got to do them and they stack up and things stack up and you don't know when you're going to get to them and you have to get to them. And so you find yourself doing things you know, just in time, like right now, I got to get this done now. And everything now seems like it's got to be done just in time. There's back to school. It's wedding season. There's holiday prep coming up. We're all cutting it close this season as we go straight from one thing to another. And with their incredibly sharp razors and refills that arrive in the nick of time, why Harry's is the official sponsor 
of cutting it close. And I have to give them credit too. Listen, any razor company that intentionally uses the word Nick in their copy is taking a big chance because that's one thing, of course, you don't want to have happen. And I'm here to tell you that in my years and years and years of using Harry's blades, I've never had a Nick. Now, maybe that's just because I'm so good, but it's probably because the blades are so good. High quality shave at a low cost too. Now, right now you can get Harry's starter set, just three bucks. That's a great price. Plus, you'll get a free travel-sized body wash. Yeah, they're not just about shaving your face. They're about taking care of the rest of you, too. And this set includes a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover. $16 value for just $3 just by visiting harrys.com slash ricochet. You will want to do that because that's like the best price in razors in the world. With Harry's, you have everything you need for a great shave. Harry's starter set starts three bucks, as I noticed, and their fill, refill blades at low as two bucks. And they're delivered right to your door so you can stop spending money on razors that are overpriced by design. You don't, you don't just save money with Harry's. You can skip the long and pleasant wait at the store. Harry's will bring their razors right to you. Don't waste any more time with competing brands. No, don't do it. Harry's, it's the best. They have the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry. You know what I've noticed? A lot of these places, you get a cheap blade, a good blade, or whatever blade, that first cut, that first shave, oh, it's great. And then it's a little less the next time. And then, you know, a little after that quickly runs out. The flavor goes like gum. Now with Harry's. They just maintain and maintain and maintain. It's the long. I have to remind myself. Oh, I really should change my blade, and I do it kind of because I, I I know I should, not because I need to. This one I've been using for a long time is still doing a great job, and they are still offering a no risk trial. No matter how busy things get, stay fresh with Harry's. Get your Harry's starter set today, and you'll also get a free travel size body wash. Go to Harry's.com/ricochet. That's Harry's.com. Slash Ricochet, and we thank Harry's for once again sponsoring the Ricochet podcast. I just want to go back because p- part of the podcast is your experiences covering Trump, mm-hmm. and part of it is some mem- memoirs of that. Part of that is sort of a general meditation on covering presidents in general and what it was like. But can we just like get a little detail here? So, did he know your name? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'll get. I know. Uh, here's one thing. So, um over 60 with curly red hair. So you can make me out anywhere. Right. And people obviously would know who I was. Um, he never called me Deborah. The one interview I had with him, uh, he didn't call me by, I mean, the one exclusive, I'd been to two other group interviews. I, I don't know if he did. Now, uh, let me just say, I worked for the Las Vegas Review Journal. It was owned by Sheldon Adelson, right. there were Pete, who was his biggest donor. Uh, the Adelson's were. And there were a lot of people who thought that that meant that I, I'd have this great entree into this, the White House. Uh, that was not the case because we were determined that we were going to cover the, the White House in a, in a fair, newsy manner, and we weren't going to be lapdogs. And so that never that never occurred. Every Every bit of access I had, I fought for. It wasn't something that was handed to me. You know, w- w- the reason I wanted to do this podcast is when you when you cover the White House, everybody expects you to write a book afterward, right? right. Well, again, I'm I'm working for a I'm the one a one person bureau for a regional newspaper, and what did I cover? I wasn't covering palace intrigues. I mean, I know that when you read the New York Times and the Washington Post, the fight between the chief of staff and director of communications is big big news, right? But we cared about COVID and Yucca Mountain, right. you know, the possible nuclear waste facility. And those are the kinds of issues that our readers were looking at. And that's where my focus was. Uh, and so the experience was about actually most people who are covering that White House, they're there for the issues. They're not getting all these insider stories. And they want to tell readers what readers want to know. And uh, that's what I was in. the. So I talked about getting in, into the White House, not, I had to, first I'm standing, everybody is fighting for purchase in the room, uh, how I, all the way I had to battle to get access. One of the things I did was join the White House pool. And mm-hmm. joining the, the pool is like the most stressful thing you can ever, ever, ever do. Because what you do is, I mean, I know people watch the, you can see it after a pool, they'll, they'll show it on cable news, and you'll see the people shouting questions. But you also have to write a report that goes back to other reporters, and it has to come out quickly, and uh, and, and you better be right. And uh, But that was the kind of thing where I got to know the staff better, uh, because obviously the, it was the staff that was going to give me access. Um, 
And so it's, it's really about telling people all these things you see, you watch a briefing, there are 49 seats there. How do people get seats there? How does that work? How does the pool work? What was it like traveling on Air Force One? Just in, and of course, what happened to me in the course of that? So it's a little, you know, the, the behind the scenes stuff is sort of fascinating. We just, we just get it served up to us. We kind of don't know how they make the sausage. <laughs> which is that, yeah. kind of terrifying. But, 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 we, okay. <laughs> but we, we do see the pool and we do see the shouting yeah, and there's no right. more ridiculous uh, exercise in politics and journalism. I, I've never met, seen any point at which the president turns around after hearing a particularly piquant question and, and stabs his finger and addresses it, unless it's a you know West Wing Aaron Sorkin show. Have you ever considered just asking things like, do you prefer mayo or mustard? <laughs> I would love for everybody to shout a scrum of questions like that. I that think actually, with Trump, we know it's Mayo. <laughs> probably so. Right. But we'd have him on record, and it would be a thing that humanizes and flushes out. So I, I my advice to the press corps is just to knock that off. I was listening to a documentary the other day about the O.J. Simpson trial, and there's somebody thrusting a mic in front of O.J.'s face. O.J., did you do it? Like, you know, like he's going to turn around right there and say, you know, you got to, in the interest of full disclosure, I did. So anyway. Um, but but uh, James, I, actually, Trump did make news because he would say things that th there are times that he would actually go on for 45 minutes during these pool sprays and he would answer questions. Now, would he maybe give a different answer the next day? Yes. But he actually did make news doing, during the pool sprays. And again, my work was my job was to get access with his staff and the harder they saw you working, the more access you got. So I have, a, I have a question, and it's related to the media bias question, but it's more of a question of news bias than than opinion bias or um, substantive bias. And that is, Trump was clearly, <laughs> to put it nicely, extremely flawed. And many of the things that people complained about were true were real it wasn't just mean tweets mm -hmm. but irrespective of trump's flaws every morning there would be this press freak out whatever he would wake up he'd sneeze and you would hear oh my god that's unconstitutional he did an unconstitutional sneeze it's a violation of the logan act <laughs> and then we'd have logan act discourse for three days and we now have a president who's not trump and he has done, in my estimation at least, quite a lot of unconstitutional or at least controversial things. Uh, he extended the eviction moratorium knowing that it was illegal. He uh, has ordered the student loan usurpation. He just took an action on Obamacare that Obama himself had said he couldn't do without Congress. And no one seems to care. And I, I suppose... What I'm asking is the mechanics of it, not when opinion writers at the Washington Post write their pieces. Why do they care about one or the other? That's obvious. But why does it seem to be the case that this behavior, this controversial behavior, doesn't even invite questions? Like, shouldn't is? Am I wrong? Does it? You know, but actually. <laughs> If you watch the briefings, there were questions about the legality of of a number of things that were being done, and there, you know, they weren't the first questions necessarily. They weren't the questions always out of the front two two rows. One of the things that I I talk about in the podcast is how the regional press tends to be more on the ground and sort of more interested in what's happening in different places. But there were, you know, there there have been questions about that. It's this, it's just not the big narrative, and that's just not right. And, and what is yeah. it that makes it not the big narrative? Is it that the questions come later in the press conference? Is it the tone? Is it the words that are used? Is it that when the story gets back to the editor at the newspaper, he says, put it on page 27? So how do those two things intersect? When you watch TV news, it's, I mean, it's, most of the stories are confirmation bias stories. This is what we thought about Biden, and this is what you're going to see. And that's the true flaw in how the White House gets covered right now. Uh, and it was, there was a different kind of confirmation bias with Trump. Mm -hmm. He's wrong. With Biden, there just isn't the kind of uh, challenge that, that... And people don't care. I mean, I think people are actually exhausted after Trump, too. I think yeah. people are just tired. There was so much heat. And uh, I think that there's a certain kind of uh, post-Trump exhaustion, uh, and Biden has benefited from it.
But don't you think that exhaustion will disappear the second it's, say, President DeSantis? <laughs> yes, I absolutely do. <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt. <laughs> then the outrage returns. Maybe, right. Again, like it's, 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 look, at most of the people there are, most of the journalists in that room are liberals. Is that one of the reasons why they, 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 they really fear and loathe DeSantis the most? Because he seems like he's the full package. I mean, he may not be, but he just seems like for the first time, you know, I mentioned earlier before you got on that the, the Republicans especially seem so absolutely desperately addicted to the political high wire act. You know, the the candidate at the debate and you're just you have your your heart in your mouth. You know, he's going to say something weird or dumb or misspeak. Isn't that one of the reasons why they're terrified of, of, of DeSantis? Because he doesn't seem to be doing that. He seems actually he seems sort of smart and articulate and fluid and like he lives in the world, but he's also doesn't back down. Let's face it. I mean, Ron DeSantis has done a number of things that are very popular with Florida voters and uh, make sense. And I think that the the press corps just don't really know what to do about that. So they go after his his, uh, he's too abrupt and they go after his style, which is what they do. So let me let me float a theory by you and tell me if you if I'm crazy. And uh, and I know I'm sort of interrupting Charles's line of questioning. Um, So he'll get right back to it. LBJ used to do this thing when he wanted you to do something um, that you didn't want to do. And it wasn't, he would never demand that you follow his orders. What he'd say is, oh my God, you got to do this for me. I'm in big trouble. He did the whole week. He was, I, I, we have the tapes of him saying, I really need you to do this. I'm an, I, if, I, if, you don't, if you don't help me out here, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? He just was essentially um, helpless that was his that was a, a way uh, that was a, a way of getting of manipulating you into sort of doing what he wanted don't you think there's a larger issue that's what kind of what the democrats do with the with the compliant press is they say listen yeah yeah you know we're, we we may have made a mistake but uh, but you know people are going to die if we're not in the white house there's a war in ukraine and a crazy uh, republican president would just he, it'd be disaster and, and uh, abortion would be absolutely uh, you know there'd be a constitutional amendment against abortion in the world like it isn't part of what they do is sort of disaster you know what what uh what psychologists call catastrophic thinking or catastrophic futurizing if you print this piece about biden not knowing what his pencil's for <laughs> then you are mm-hmm. going to kill americans and and I think if you're, you know, if you're sort of mildly partisan, but extremely, let alone extremely partisan person and committed progressive, you think, well, yeah, you know, I better not print that part. Well, I better I not co- print the news. Is that, is that, a, is that theory work? I covered the Biden White House for five weeks and they were very professional as I dealt with them. But I do know this. There are certain stories that you do uh they make it clear. I mean, they're going to fight you every inch of the way. Uh, if somebody writes mm-hmm. about Hunter Biden, for example, that's going. They're going to get pushback, and the pushback isn't going to be this is bad for the world. It's more like this. <laughs> this is not. This is going to be bad for you. <laughs> we're going to. We're going to. We're going to fight you every inch. And if there are certain stories that you can write about politicians, and that they'll come back, and they're just going to let you know that they're going to challenge it. Uh, I've covered certain people. Uh, I can think of one. Uh, environmental group and 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 uh they're involved in a lawsuit and you knew that if you wrote about them that they were going to spend two days challenging everything you wrote and be a complete time suck and and you know that wait a second hold on. hold on here though journalists are are firefighters they run to the fires they are the ones i've in, I, i've seen the movies when they get that kind of pushback, it only stiffens their spine and encourages them to, to <laughs> dig even harder and deeper. Why, it, 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 they're there to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfort. The, the idea that you can't write about something or, or you will suffer professional consequences in your milieu goes against any number of uh, motion pictures that have uh, told us the contrary. So I'm, I, I guess I'm being lied to. Um, but, but you know, the thing is when you, if you're a white house correspondent, you've got one person, one thing you're covering and yes, there are other sources that you can have, but there's a certain hole that they have over you on access. Mm-hmm. And that is an issue uh, for people. So if you think that your access is going right. to be questioned, 
that's it's so that's I think really the. I mean, but that's you so, so it's, you, what you're basically saying is that I'm wrong because I was saying it's not about professional access or professional um, perks. It's about an ideological position you put your fellow progressives who are technically on the other side and the press side again if you write this you're helping the other side and helping the other side is immoral and will lead to um you know the collapse of democracy if you if you print a story about hunter biden and his laptop in late october 2020 you're you're basically making it you're basically electing donald trump and none of yeah. us wants that say they say they to you and then, and then you're the press you're like okay well yeah i don't really want to help donald trump so i'm not going to print the truth that is may that well possible? have been done. That uh, certainly is possible. But I, as I said, I think they also just there's a more strong arm kind of thing. Which is, okay. What do they control? Access. It, what do people? It, what do people? It, it, it sounds like if you don't, if you write about this, we are going to in the future curtail your ability to listen to our lies on different subjects. Well, so <laughs> uh, so I I have a, a, it's a highly a, ironic way to put it. <laughs> in a sense, a follow-up question to Rob's, but also, I, I suppose, a, an implicit mild disagreement with him in the sense that I think that it's become more insidious than he proposes, in that it's one thing to say, well, if you publish this story or if you frame this news in this way, then abortion will be made illegal. But abortion is clearly a matter of great national debate and has been for a long time. And any journalist worth his or her salt is going to want to deny that they would be swayed by the potential effects of a story on abortion or guns or taxes or what you will. But there is a, a new tactic that has been adopted by the Democratic Party, and I think picked up by many in the press. It is far more difficult to get around, and the incentives are far less strong for journalists to get around it, and that is that democracy is on the line, and so is truth. And I wonder how much, in your estimation, and obviously you're not able to look into people's souls, but in your estimation, the press corps has come to internalize this idea that we're not talking here about political disputes. We're not talking here about whether the Republicans or the Democrats win, or whether the tax rate is high or low, or we spend or we don't, or Medicare has expanded. We're talking about democracy versus fascism. We're talking about truth versus disinformation. Because I, from the outside, the inside of journalism, but the outside of reporting, increasingly see a press corps and a bunch of reporters within it who think that if they, for example, this week, tell the truth about John Fetterman's condition, that this might have the consequence of establishing an American Hitler. And that's much more difficult to talk people out of or or to appeal to a sense of fairness, right? So do you think that's been internalized in in the press corps or, or is it an excuse? I think that most, well, I mean, my experience was being in the White House and covering the White House beat and writing stories about what was going on. Most of the time, people are working on a particular story of the day. I mean, there are people who go in and they can ask a question and it can get in, it, it can evoke an answer, which becomes the big story. Certainly that happened with Donald Trump. But, you know, most of the people there, they have they have beats within the beat. They have an environmental th angle or a justice angle. And really, if you watch a briefing from start to finish, a lot of the questions deal with meat and potatoes stories. and. That was certainly my interest. I was interested in the policies that they were doing. I was also, of course, interested in Trump because who can not be? And and Trump himself was a story. But I, I, uh, I I've I've never had anybody say that to me that democracy is on the line if I if I write something that they don't want me to write. That's all. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. That's yeah. good to know. So, are, are are we in general on the right a little too paranoid about the press? Or are we or are we not paranoid enough? Or I open the New York. Uh, I get the New York Times every day. I get the uh -huh. New York Times every day. Just to use an example, right? I, I, I mm -hmm. like to do the crossword puzzle. I like to do mm -hmm. it uh, on paper. I don't want to do it on the app, and I want to do that crossword puzzle because it's the best. Um, mm -hmm. And I read the news. I read the news in the New York Times. So I get the New York Times anyway. Um, and mm -hmm. I kind of like look at it and I, yeah, I have a little like uh, one eyebrow cocked 
when I read it. Um, and every now and then, I mean, a lot of the war coverage I think is really great. A lot of the foreign policy stuff I think is really good. Um, some of the political stuff I think is okay, but I, I, I kind of, you know, it's like I put on a special pair of glasses to read it. Am I, am I being too paranoid or not paranoid enough? Or am I just, or is that the way we have to read the news now? Well, it's it's really clear when you look at, at, at the Washington Post, New York Times, that there are a lot of things that we think of stories they don't. Yeah. The other, the, and and immigration is a great, another great example where all these things are happening at the border and they, they haven't covered it as if it's a story. So there are obviously, you know, the biggest way that bias shows itself is in what people don't consider to be a story. And that's an issue. Uh, but but I don't think I, again, I think it's most largely unconscious. I, I've, I've worked with people and you and they they think they're neutral. They think everybody should think the way they do. They don't understand this other point of view. It's just so sad the way you look at the balkanization of stories. The fact that you can read stories about uh, the laptop and and and, and right. Hunter Biden in general and somebody and 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 they'll be they'll be in the conservative media because the, and the conservative media will cover uh, you know aggressively because. The other mainstream outlets don't. So it's right. it's it's a problem. And I I I really do think that the, that when you get outside of the beltway, you see less of it. But, you know, newspaper newspapers hire liberals. They're, they're, the editors are liberals. The top management people are liberals They uh, they don't necessarily even know they liber- they're liberals. But they know, but they do know, and that's who they hire, and it it becomes mm-hmm. a you know it's it's an echo chamber, and that's a real problem with journalism. But I will say one thing: under the Trump White House, and and and, and even this White House, there are a lot of good conservative outlets that cover things aggressively, know what a story is, um, and and that's something we should see more of. Yeah. Um, all right. Can we just go back to the? Um, can we just get back to the the big uh, orange elephant in the room? Um, mm-hmm. what's he going to do? Oh, what's I he knew you were going to ask got that. A bunch, of, <laughs> a, a bunch of stuff going. I mean, I don't, I don't even mean is he the, 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 the election of running, running again or not. Um, he's got, he's, he's besieged really on all sides, uh, you know, in New York and financially and, um, January 6th, all that stuff. Is it, is it, is he, are they poking that bear so hard that he's got to run? Or is he? What do you, your instinct having co- covered him? Is he looking for a way out? What what what's going on right now in that that um, very complicated brain of his? So I don't know, and I've talked to people. Uh, you know, there are people. There are a lot of people who don't know. Uh, I just have my suspicions, and my guess would be my instinct is that he does not run. That he's. Wow. I think he's hmm. And it's. I think he's spiraling down. I think that as he's, you know, he's the better people who have worked in his administration, and there are many great people who worked with him. They're not part of his team anymore. He's just in the room with a bunch of grifters, and he's hearing what he wants to be told. And his hold, I mean, when he had people in his in his in his West Wing who were realists and telling him this is how you should do it, he often didn't listen to them, but they had him tethered. He is untethered now. And uh, that so it's possible he does run, but I don't think he has the discipline or the organization to get what he wants. I remember talking to people who thought that he would not if he lost, he wouldn't admit it. And it was clear to me that if that he didn't have he didn't have people who could make that argument with left anymore in that White House. By the time he lost, they were gone. And certainly they were gone by January 6th, right? right. So he, I, I just see him as, um, he's he's just isolated in a way he's not been before. And he has, and all of the people he listens to are telling him the wrong stuff. He doesn't have people who are telling him the right stuff, other than Melania, I presume, and his kids. Um, but that's, so I don't, I think in the end, if he runs, it will be for a short amount of time. It'll be it. It'll it, and it won't last. It will be like his last international trip was a NATO trip in London, and we're I'm there covering it. And every time there's a pool spray with the other world leaders, he can't stop talking. 
And it's unbelievable. These little short pool sprays that should be five or 10 minutes or, you know, they go on for 30, 40 minutes and it delays the whole timetable and nobody mm-hmm. can believe he does it. And so when it's time for him to do the press conference, he's so angry, he doesn't do it and he leaves. And that's sort of what I would see. If he decides to run, he's going to overdo it. He's going to overtalk and overplay. And then when he doesn't get the result he wants, he'll go. He'll go. We have seen yeah. him overplay his hand. He did it in the debate. He wasn't able to calibrate the disdain and the anger. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you, who is the most professional person who you worked with in the Trump administration, or maybe a press secretary or a handler? I, I, I made a point in the in the podcast of not naming people lest I get them in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) You like somebody, if they've been good to you, I'm not sure I'm doing them a favor saying it. So that's, uh, uh, well, I mentioned different characters. I mean, I, I was there through four press secretaries, um, Sean Spicer, uh, um, obviously Sarah Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Stephanie Grisham and Kaylee McEnany. And, you know, they were, they, I, I mean, it, we we saw. I, I can tell you the worst was Scaramucci. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it lasted a week. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ten or eleven days, depending on how you count. Right. That that Adam decayed quickly. See, the thing is, though, Deb, when pitching your podcast, just to say to Charles' question, I you know what I'd love to tell you, but that's something for the podcast, and then people will tune <laughs> into the podcast. You don't have to tell them, but you can tease it thus. Uh, and uh-huh. we're teasing it thus now, uh, covering Trump. Your podcast is available. Um, hmm. Where is it available? On Ricochet. Yeah, on Ricochet. That's exactly what we want to say, and we're happy to have you. There, part there of the we go. Part of the Ricochet Audio Network. Deb Saunders, thanks for joining us again. It's always been a pleasure, thanks, and we hope we'll see you again in the future. We hope good luck with the podcast. Thank you. This it's was great. great. I appreciate it. It's great. It's riveting. You got to listen to it. Thank you. So the uh, you know she's saying that he's not going to run, which brings to mind the image sort of Trump just wandering Mar-a-Lago like Citizen Kane, like Charles Foster Kane towards the end there, um, you know, in a robe perhaps or not, or maybe you know I don't know. Do you wear a robe around the house? I don't, but uh, you know, when I change, I'm in a room with no windows. Maybe you're the kind of person who changes in a room that's full of windows with the curtains up. I don't know. Maybe that's your thing. But even if you did, you know. Uh, you kind of might wonder what some kind of weirdo outside is looking in at you, right? I don't have anything to hide, you say. <clears throat> Privacy counts. And without a virtual private network, VPN, uh, you are exposed. You're exposed to internet service providers. ISPs can see every single website you visit, and they can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants. But, 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 if you are protected with ExpressVPN, ExpressVPN, my friends, your online activity is hidden from ISPs. Your identity is anonymized, and your data is encrypted. Couldn't be easier to use. All you have to do is fire up the app and click one button. Works on all your devices and even your routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi then is protected. Now you say, why do I need that? I, I, I don't care. I don't care what they see. Well, there are the, sometimes, you know, when you search for something on Google and you're wincing while you do it because you can possibly imagine theoretically the the dreadful results that are going to pop up and you really don't want that anywhere in your history. Do you? No. So be protected all the time and route everything through express VPN. You can secure your online activity today by visiting expressvpn.com slash ricochet today. That's E X P R E S S VPN.com slash ricochet. And you can get an extra three months free an extra three months free, but only if you go to expressvpn.com slash ricochet and we thank expressvpn for sponsoring this the ricochet podcast all right rob uh before we get to our final little con uh confab here why don't you tell people where they can actually meet up in real life with other human beings in real life breathe oxygen consume proteins uh and then make air pass over their tongue and larynx to create sounds we call words i know in this virtual (laughs) zoom world that seems like a strange (laughs) thing to do but you're all dangerous dangerous um well listen uh, i keep telling you you should join uh ricochet and i say that because we want you on the site we want you to join in the conversations we want to hear your voice but we also want to see you in real life so the ricochet meetups that's where we do that where are these meetups well when you join ricochet.com you'll know but we're happy to give you some hints we've mentioned over the last few weeks that events will be going on in huntsville alabama 
uh, that's the 22nd of October. So it's this month. So if you're in the area, go. Uh, there's a group meeting on the National View Institute cruise, which is in November. And I think there's still some places available there. Uh, we have one scheduled in Pittsburgh in December. And finally, New Orleans next year in 2023 during French Quarterfest. Uh, I'm going to do whatever I can to be that one. That one sounds great. I mean, they all sound great, but I have a special, special fondness for New Orleans. Gee, Rob, none of those are near me. What do yeah, I do? Well, so you are probably thinking that if you'd like to go, but none of them are near you as my interlocutor. It's so rude to really to interrupt somebody when they're doing a promo. Um, really, I thought I thought better of you, James. Uh, but it, look, it's a big country. Money's tight. Uh, if our meetup locations are out of reach or the timing's not right, you aren't doomed. Just join. That's the secret sauce. Join Ricochet. Give us a place and a time. I guarantee you Ricochet will come to you. Um, that's the benefit of being a member of the club, and we would not like you to join. So for details on our Ricochet meetups, go to uh, ricochet.com slash events. There's also a module in the sidebar on the site. Uh, all you got to do is join, which you want to do anyway. And now here's another reason to do it so that you can raise a glass uh, or two or 10 or 27, as we all did in New York recently. Um and uh, meet some really, really funny, interesting, uh, thoughtful, and uh, incredibly, incredibly genial, nice folks. Lifelong friendships. We've had uh, marriages. I think we've had some marriages. We've had uh, a, a Ricochet is really a place that is more than just a place to type out your thoughts. That it is. Before we go, uh, there was an intersectional nightmare in Dearborn, Michigan over the past week. There were a... Uh, a variety of parents who were protesting LGBT material in the classroom, and they were Muslims. They didn't like it. They had signs in English and Arabic that said, keep your dirty books in the closet, stop grooming our kids, homosexuality, homosexuality, big sin, and other such things. I've always thought that the progressive embrace of Islam was rather uh, paper-thin and hypocritical because there aren't a great number of rainbow flags outside of mosques. That when you drill down into what people actually believe, it's it's contrary to many of the beloved precepts of uh, the progressive side. But here, uh, apparently, there was a there was one uh, fellow, a gay fellow, who got up and said, "You can't unite with the right because they hate you." They don't. But this is an, an issue which seems to have brought together a broad spectrum of people, a diverse spectrum of people, to oppose what they saw to be the un, the unneeded introduction of sexually explicit materials into lower grades. Does this portend a crack up of the uh, of, of the Democratic coalition? We're seeing Hispanics move to Republicans as well, particularly on issues like immigration. You know. Uh, is this more signs of fissures and cracks that will only widen in time? He said, leaving it open-ended enough for somebody to say yay or nay. Yay or nay, Charles. Well, it's quite an interesting topic. <laughs> Am I violating the yay or nay rule? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, there's no, that's no rule. It's a guideline. It, it's an interesting topic, this, because in 2000, Republicans worked quite hard to win Muslims and did pretty well with Muslims. And in fact, Muslims were one of the reasons that they won Florida just. And of course, 9-11 changed all that. Because although it was entirely unfair to propose that George W. Bush had been rude about Muslims, he wasn't at all. He went out of his yeah, way. A bit over his backwards. Right. Yeah, uh, there was this perception uh, that the Republican Party had decided that Muslims were the cause of all the world's problems, and the Muslim vote swung back toward uh, Democrats. But the argument that you heard in 2000 for George W. Bush over Al Gore was actually pretty much the argument that was on display in Dearborn, which was the Republican Party is the party of social conservatives, and Muslims are social conservatives, therefore... And, you know, the, uh, the fight over international terrorism had for a long time overshadowed that. But you you could be forgiven now for wondering if that's going to change again. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Democrats are crazy on a lot of social issues. And, you know, I'm somebody who is pro-life, but is not in many other areas particularly socially conservative. I'm not in favor of, say, the drug war. Um, I'm a bit of a squish on criminal justice. I've been in favor of gay marriage forever. Um, abortion is the one exception. Um, the Democratic Party 
is far too social liberal for me <laughs> because it has embraced all these bizarre theories. <laughs> and yeah, if you're right. a devout Muslim, you probably do look at it now and say, well, d- do I belong here? So it would be very interesting if 22 years after this outreach uh, uh, effort, the the Democrats begin to lose Muslims again to a Republican Party for the same reason they began to lose them in 2000 just before 9-11. So I don't, I don't know, but I, I can absolutely see this, this happening. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the, 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 the secret strategy, winning strategy, complicated winning strategy to all American politics is you have to appear to be less weird and less nuts than your opponent for about five more minutes than your opponent. That's kind of all you have to do. And, um, What's so strange to me is this the relentless need of the Democrats to invent new things to be weird about things that we didn't even know were things five years mm-hmm. ago, four years ago, two years ago, that they've not only now sort of identified and and uh, integrated into their political platform, but they've gotten really weird about it, too. And I just find that's a very strange kind of a strange death drive. I mean, I don't well, know about it, but it does seem like an organism trying to jump off a cliff. And I call it their suicide machine, and I've written yeah. about this, but the, mm-hmm. the, the reason it is particularly weird, and I haven't written about this, is that it does work, but it works among the people who don't vote. And that is that I have noticed that if you go onto a college campus, you will find people everywhere mm-hmm. who will say, well, I, I'm not really interested in voting Republican because of the party's position on insert thing they hadn't thought about and no one in the world had thought about until 27 seconds ago. Right. But those people don't vote. Mm-hmm. So why do it? One last thing that before we go to pitch Charles podcast, I'd like you to tell me as succinctly as possible, why you think it is that a group that had something as brilliantly cynical as crime of the century and as deservedly popular and melodic as uh, breakfast in America is regarded now somehow as some sort of pop culture punchline. I say this because Charles, like myself, is a fan of Supertramp, just an unjustly um, uh, attacked band, which did some remarkable work and bridged the gap between progressive and pop in a way that few others have with two disparate personalities whose warring intellects and ways of looking at the world eventually would rip everything apart. And they were lesser. Hmm. They were lesser alone than they were together. But Davies and Hodgson stand up there as a songwriting team that I think uh, can hold their own against anybody else in their time and their in, in their genre. Am I right, Charles, or am I well, right? Well, so I have to say, James, I'm honestly not being coy here. I didn't know that they were disparaged. Oh, I didn't know well, that either. Well, welcome to the real world. I, yes, I think <laughs> I, I think they are. I think in the same way that punk, uh, you know, wanted to dethrone the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and everybody else who was so my favorite bands. Then, uh, right, All right. right. I, I have a uh, I have a super tramp um, anecdote which I'll share. Please do. Uh, I know we're running late, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna share it anyway. Um, last night I met a a, a, a rest, bar restaurant that I love in New York City. It's called Neary's on 57th Street between First and Second. Um, old Irish bar has turned into kind of a you know a slightly fancy but not really steakhouse. Um, the owner impresario of it, um, James Neary, died died at 90. Like I think within the past six months, something like that. A great place, great bar. Like old big old Irish bartender, like the classic. You walk in, you know you're there. They kind of want you to wear a jacket if you're a guy. They kind of that's kind of one of those places. Um, and uh, uh, the guy at, uh, taking uh, taking the uh, coats and the bags uh, is um, a drummer. And uh, he, you know, when it, night got thin and the, the bar crowd sort of stumbled out, um, he started talking about drummers. And he and the bartender started talking about and the and the playlist on in the restaurant then entered a super tramp kind of vein. So there was some super tramp in in, in mixed. And we talked about super tramp a lot and how no. But he listens to Super Tramp anymore, kind of echoing you. And I told him this story about my godson. We were driving back from the beach in Santa Barbara. This is many, many years ago, at least 10, 15 years ago. And I had Super Tramp on, uh, and I uh, on my phone. I guess I had my phone hooked up at that point. And um, I was playing him Super Tramp Breakfast in America. And I think he was maybe 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old. And the dog's in the back. We're driving back. And he looks at me and he says, who are these guys? This is the greatest <laughs> album I've ever heard. It was, and it, like, I, I remember listening to Breakfast in America as the, not, I was thinking a little older than he was at the time and thinking exactly the same thing. Uh-huh. 
Uh huh. So it's timeless, James. Don't let this be one more burden on you to get to to contribute to your dour Midwestern way of looking at the world. Dour? Are you kidding? Some of the most joyous moments of my life have been driving down the highway at excessive speed with the roof open and all the windows down and the guitar solo from Goodbye Stranger at the end of it playing Excellent. in all of its one note glory. I mean, the that solo. The, I mean, he just starts with one note over and over and over again, and then uses his face pedal and his wah wah to move it around. It is just great. And he's such a hippie. I mean, he's a long-haired, cosmic, Gaia-loving hippie. But, man, that thing rocks. And they faded out because I don't know if they were short of space or he just ran out of ideas. But that fade is one of the saddest things because I just wanted to keep going forever and ever and ever. Maybe that's the point, to know that it's out there playing somewhere. Uh, and perhaps at some point you'll hear the rest of it. Maybe when we die or shut off the podcast. I'm telling the producers either go out with that solo or just fade us all down <laughs> like they do there yeah. on a record Agreed. where the band couldn't come Agreed. up with a way to end the song. Charles C.W. Cook, listen to his podcast. Thank you again for sitting in for Peter. We'll see you next week if Peter is waylaid somewhere, perhaps in a trunk, thanks to the Brigato Rossi. Rob <laughs> Long in New York, uh, ever great, always fun. And thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. We thank our sponsors, of course, Donors Trust, Harry's, and ExpressVPN. And we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week week guys next week fellas Join the conversation.